This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Gwen. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Okay, so we went a little over our usual time this week. A little. But it was merited. So worth it. Because we have an incredible guest. The most amazing. And an incredible interview. The man most responsible for helping us get justice for Billy. So as Justice for Billy Month continues here at the podcast, we are now going to go directly into our interview with stay-at-home, empty nester, not stay-at-home dad. Empty nester. Empty nester, uh, social worker. Investigator extraordinaire. A savant, savant, according to the LAPD detective who introduced him to us. Clark Williams, that's up next right here at TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever ebooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. Uh, welcome back to TDPS Presents. Christopher and Eric joining us in the studio is Clark Williams himself, and we just like to say. Oh, it's so embarrassing. We know he it hates makes it. you. He hates it. We're driving him crazy. Yes, we applauded are. when he got to the studio, and we just had to begin with applause. My, I mean, wow. Wow. Wow, Clark. Wow. That's, we are so impressed. Everybody's impressed. The police, the police officer who was in charge of the case, John Lombardi, was here last week, and he was all he could talk about was how amazing you are and what a phenomenal contribution you've made to getting justice for Billy. I this is well, I'm stunned by it as everyone else is. Frankly, for all the months that I put into working on the case, I never thought it would get solved. I mm-hmm. how did you get started working on this well, case? It's sort of it's interesting. So I was a stay-at-home dad for several years. I'm a social worker by my training and have worked in the social work profession, a number of different jobs over the past 20 years. Well, thank you. That's a hard job. It we is, and I, and I love it, and I love it. all the skills that I've gained from all the unique clients that I've had. and But the hardest job I've ever had was being a parent 
And mm. yeah, um, I could see how that. You know, that's a that's a tough job, but I loved it. And sadly, my daughter went off to college, and she how left dare me. She? How dare she leave? Damn me. it! And she is a, a remarkable young woman. She's a I'll student bet. athlete at Michigan State University, and was a very talented athlete throughout her whole life. Cool. What's you, her What's her area? Uh, she's a rower. She rows crew. Oh, cool. So it took a lot. But before she started rowing crew, she played basketball and soccer, and there was not a sport that she didn't love. But as wow. a parent, that takes a lot of attention. I had to drive her everywhere. I was more a chauffeur than a parent. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that it reaches that point with a so lot of So she parents. went off to college. I could not have been more proud that she that she went off to college. Of course. And, and, uh, but then I drove home by myself after dropping her off, me and a box of Kleenex on the way back from Lansing yeah. to, oh. to California. Oh, that's a lot of Kleenex. It was. And I was trying to figure out this next phase of my life. What was I going to do with the rest of my life? And my friends and family never really were concerned. They know I've always had my hands in all sorts of activities, but Mm -hmm. I was a little concerned. Sure. So I decided to spend some time up. We have a vacation house by Yosemite National Park, and I'm an outdoorsman. So I love the outdoors. I hike and fish and do all sorts of stuff. And yeah, it's a beautiful area. And my my husband is an attorney, so he was working. And I said, you know, I'm just going to go up to the lake I'm going to do some writing. I'm going to do some thinking. I don't really know what, but I, you know, was, I'm 57 years old and I was trying to figure out, is my life over? Is this, what is this what it is? Is it Clearly time for me not. to make that curve into retirement? Is that really where I'm headed? And I realized that I was thinking a lot about the life that I've lived, the life that I grew up in on a farm in rural Northern Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, to coming out, coming of age in the 1980s um, as a gay man and the difficulties that I personally had. Sure. My first boyfriend that I had who became my partner and husband who died from AIDS in mm. 1994. Oh, my. By the time I was, you know, 28, he was I had buried my, my partner and all of the friends that we all lost yeah. during that time. And then I, you know, met my current husband and we had a family. And so it really has been a remarkable life that I've lived. But... I was really missing sort of reflecting on some of the people that I've known throughout the years and wondered what happened to them. And so I decided to try to reconnect with some of the people that I had left from Wisconsin, sort of my coming of age process. So I joined a Facebook group called the History of Gay Wisconsin. And I sort of thought, well, if there's anyone who's still alive and there aren't many from my coming yeah, of age that starts to who happen, are alive. Yeah, like I'm one of, sometimes I feel like a lone survivor. Um, but I thought I could meet some people. So I joined that group in on December of 2021 and started reading some of the posts. And I found this post that had been put in this, this Facebook group by Rachel Mason, the documentary filmmaker. And I had been aware of her because I'd seen her documentary, huh. Circus of mm-hmm. Books. But it was a, a clip from a Milwaukee Magazine article about the Jeffrey Dahmer connection to this 32-year unsolved murder case. Mm -hmm. And this is the work that you guys had unearthed, Mm, was that Jeffrey Dahmer connection. When I saw the posting, I gasped because I lived in Milwaukee during the Jeffrey Dahmer years. Mm. So I'm very familiar with Jeffrey Dahmer, went to the same bars and nightclubs as he did, survived the period after Jeffrey Dahmer, which for the gay community was a really torturous period. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure. And I knew that what, what Rachel had put in there by triggering was going to be very triggering um, for people in the gay community. Because for those of us that made it through, survived the Jeffrey Dahmer years in the gay community, those were not great years. And it brought a lot of attention to our safe spaces, 
the whole idea of Jeffrey Dahmer being, uh, you know, sort of the gay serial killer trope mm-hmm. yeah. uh, did not make things better for our community at I'm all. Sure and not. being one of the most well-known gay people in that moment. I, I yes. remember being a young closeted person who's just wanting to wring his neck for, for you. This is what people are now thinking right. of when they think of gay men yes. and you and your horrible and crimes. And he, he killed our friends. Yes. And he, he took advantage of his role in the community to find our safe space. I mean, he came mm-hmm. into our place right. where we were safe and life got worse for the gay for gay people after Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested. Right. Suddenly, the haters knew where to find us. So mm. the number of hate crimes dramatically increased. And we were all obviously serial killers like yes, Jeffrey. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And yes. it was also just it was sort of coming of age of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I mean, when like for for Billy Newton and I, we came of age at a time in the upper Midwest when you had people like John Wayne Gacy, cuffs splattered all over the yeah. front pages. Right. And so it was always, and then of course, coming of age during the HIV AIDS pandemic. Absolutely. So, horrifying. you know, our friends and family and institutions used that against us and made it even more difficult to, to come out and to come of age. And so I just knew that the reaction to Rachel's post was maybe not going to be great. And so I was you know, I care about people. And I, mm-hmm. so I, I thought, well, I'm going to, you know, who is this person and why did she put this in there? And I tried to soften it. But really, when I read the article, I read about Billy Newton. And right. I was stunned to learn that Billy Newton grew up in the same town I did, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard of it. Never heard, didn't know him, yeah. didn't remember him. I thought, well, why didn't I know him? That doesn't make any sense. When did you move to Los Angeles? So I moved in Los Angeles in 2013. Okay. But I had had grown up in Eau Claire, lived in Ladysmith. Actually, I was living in Ladysmith on which the day, is where he lived, which wasn't is this it? Yeah. very small town of 2,500 people. I was living in Ladysmith the day that Billy Newton was murdered. Wow. So wow. the connection, it just. It was like I was in a Mind time blowing. travel. Absolutely. I believe he left Wisconsin in 85? 81. 81. 1981. With his mother, right? Well, that is not correct. That's, oh, Yeah, wow. that's actually not what happened. Wow. That is a story that his mother put in the Lady Smith News to wow. make herself appear as if she was more caring about Billy than she actually was. Wow. The reality is Billy Newton ran away. Yeah. He was thrown out of the house. Wow. And oh, he was th- thrown out of the house like a lot of young gay men of that age, mm. particularly where I grew up in northern Wisconsin. And so, so, you know, I, I just, when I realized that about, about Billy and that we were from the same community, I just thought, well, how come I don't know about this? And I just, I felt like I was, like that was me. Like that could have been me. We were the same age. We yeah. were born one week apart. Oh my. We were exactly the same age. And if he had lived, we would have been good friends. He would have been my brother. Mm. Somebody that had had the same experiences I had had. And that's what I was looking for. I couldn't find anyone that was still alive. And here I found this person, yet another person, who I would have known, uh, who would have been my friend, who was dead. And so that's really how I learned about the case. And so when I reached out to Rachel, I told her, I said, listen, I don't remember Billy Newton. That itself is a mystery. Why do I not know him? But um, I can tell you what his early life would have been like. And it's not very good. Mm -hmm. I mean, Growing up in rural community in northern Wisconsin, a young gay kid, late 70s, 1980s, right. it just was not easy for us. In fact, the word gay didn't really exist. All that we had was fag. I mean, that was right, really right. what we were called. At best. At best. So yes, in terms of your investigative process, mm-hmm. how did you begin familiarizing yourself with the facts of the case? Because I know what we went through, yeah. and it was not easy because, as you were saying, there it was, was no not well reported on no, it. No, it. Not was even n- at home. It was not covered in the Los Angeles Times right. at all. 
at, at the all. time. They said, and the excuse that they allegedly gave Mark Ravens was, we don't want to bring out the crazies, which sort of sounds like, hmm. Hey, the crazies were already there. Yeah, the crazies were already there. <laughs> Clearly. It was a horrible year for homicides in general in Los Angeles. I believe there were a thousand homicides that year. We were just shy of the LA riots. It was a really combustible, crime-ridden time in the mm-hmm. city's history. So on top of that, but it wasn't, it wasn't written about. The only reporting we could find were over the years, the adult industry trade publications would cover the case. Mm-hmm. J.C. Adams, Mickey Ski, right. they, they, who wrote about it like it was a business, they would write about it. And that was it. And I remember putting together a file for us, and it was like three pages long. Yeah. So how and did you start? And a from the one. Which came late in the game. They, they Somebody I was talking to at the One Archives, and we were looking for like local uh, paper, mm-hmm. lo- local sort of uh, you know neighborhood yes. journals. And th- there was an, an archivist there who said, you've gotten me interested in this case, and I found this flyer, which we had on our yeah. – and that was – that we – And know. that was kind of it. Well, because remember the time period when Billy was killed, yeah. October 1990. Our community was in the throes of the right. AIDS Absolutely. pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. So we were all caregiving, right? We were all supporting, trying to get ourselves organized right. to care for each other, and we were sick yeah. as well. So – it quickly moved on. There were a, there was a lot of death around us a at that lot. time. And I, but one of the things we dealt with early on is somebody who was not in charge of investigating the case said that the rumor or the, the story of the case inside law enforcement was that yeah that guy he had been a porn performer and he was HIV positive and he infected a lot of people so they killed him and cut up his body and got and it was like. Anybody who knows what what life was like in the community at that time knows how absurd that story exactly. is. For one, that anybody would have isolated Billy as a vector of disease Correct. given the amount of infection in the community was just absurd. So it was like yes. um, that was the kind of stuff and people had to push HIV through. he positive, was he? Well, I don't think we have any evidence that he was necessarily. And I think, you know, like it, it was – it didn't – there was no evidence that it was the reason he was in that dumpster. Nobody right. knew why he was in that dumpster other than he'd been murdered like, and cut into pieces. Can you imagine the carnage if somebody had – started killing people for having HIV like I there was already like it was already a death sentence at that at that time for most people who were diagnosed so and it really harkened back to the same attacks that were used against all gay people during that time right that we were all going to die from AIDS right we're still arguing with the Red Cross about being able to give blood people wanted that Mm -hmm. I mean it was a plague upon our community Right. They, we yeah. were dealing with that from all of the institutions around us, including law enforcement. And then you add in a bunch of LAPD cops walk into a gay bar and say, OK, tell us who was here on Sunday night. Right. And they're saying, bitch, please. <laughs> the same police that had just raided the Hollywood spa the week before. Had they? I didn't know this. So the Hollywood, yeah. the gay community, the relationship between the gay community and law enforcement in 1990 was improving. It was yeah. getting better. But it was not good no. at all. Didn't know this about yeah, the raid. Did, wow. Oh, yeah. There were okay. a number of those. So, so how the I, point at which you dove in was So what where? I decided I needed to do, once I had spoken with Rachel and was finding the same, having the same difficulties you guys were, right. was that I decided I wasn't going to, if the, the police are good at what they do, like they're really good. They took advantage yeah. of all the tools that they had at the time. Lots of eyes have been on this case by law enforcement. I and was not... And that has been something nice to find out. It was, out. me it too. It was easy to dismiss them, but they have never discounted this case or given it Absolutely. half measures. They really did. They did everything right within the resources they had available to them. They did the very best. And I, frankly, I was surprised by that as well. And pleased. Yes, I, I was. But I wasn't going to be better than them. 
That's what I thought. I thought there's no way well, I can be better than them. I don't know, Clark. So, <laughs> John kind of thinks you are. We talked to him last week, and he was like, I can't think the way Clark Williams thinks. Well, what I realized, you know, I'm a social worker, and yeah. I start with the client. That's mm-hmm. I start where the client is. And so I'm like, well, who is Billy? Why did I not know him? Right. And so I realized I was going to take a victim-centered approach. Why was Billy Newton there at the scene of the crime? Rather than trying to find the killer, if I could figure out Billy and who Billy Newton was and why he was there, maybe the killer would reveal himself. That was my thought. And so I just went into a deep dive into everything Billy Newton. I can tell you where Billy Newton was every month of every year of his life. Oh, my God. And it was a laborious amount of work. Mm -hmm. I had to talk to all of his friends and family. Oftentimes, information was conflicting. I had to read anything I could find from his friends, any, any... correspondence from his mother or other family members at the time. I went back to Wisconsin and literally spent two weeks there walking the same streets Billy did. I wanted to get myself into Billy's head. Who was Billy Newton? I was able to even track down his school records. Now, they were not supposed to give them to me. That was a mistake on their part, but I was happy it was a mistake that was (laughs) done. Because what I learned about Billy Newton gave me so much insight into... Mm. What happened on the day he was murdered? The fact that Billy, Billy's mother was severely mentally ill. She oh. had antisocial personality oh. disorder, a lot of substance addiction, fractured family. Father was married five times. Mother was married three times. Oh. His father was actually married to someone I went to high school with, so I, I knew wow. that. Oh, my God. Um, and uh, also she moved every six months. So mm. Billy never went to the same school one year after the next. Right. Oh. And throughout, when I got his elementary school records, I was was stunned at the different addresses. So he never had any friends. He never could make friends. That's why I could never find any friends. That's why I wasn't a friend, was because he never stayed at the same school. Can I ask you something really quick before I forget it? Mm-hmm. And I think this may be something you came across. The Wikipedia entry on Billy, which was, uh-huh. is bare bones, mentions a partner in Oklahoma named Terry Elliott. Terry Elliott. And none of us have any idea who he is. And nobody I've ever talked to. Me either. To. I've, I've heard of Terry Elliott, but... Terry Elliott is someone that he moved here with from Oklahoma City okay, and was here for about three weeks. Okay. Billy got a job at Hollywood Spa, and then Terry Elliott went back to Oklahoma, okay. and he disappeared. That's all I knew. Okay. And okay. how he ended up in the Wikipedia page? I d- he ended up, and I think, in the Man Shots article on Billy's murder. Yeah. So one of the porn magazines covered, gave him a, a, a sort of legitimate right. obituary, and Terry Elliott was in there. Oh, and I never tried could to find, find who Terry was. And that's Elliott the problem. Was. I mean, just the name Terry Elliott. Do you yeah. realize how many names pop up? I yeah. mean, it's so hard. Right. I love sure. when someone has a difficult name, because it's a lot easier to oh, find totally. them. Oh, totally, totally. Um, that's so, wild. I hadn't so, heard that. And so I really started there, and it was interesting. As I was building out what I call a psychosocial assessment, all the psychology, all the social life surrounding Billy, what made him leave Ladysmith, mm. right? I knew what Billy's mother had said. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I talked to Billy's friends and family, I got a totally different story. And what I learned was that he had actually come out to his parent, his father, his father threw him out of the house and said, I have no son who will be gay. That was very familiar to Mm. me and to most young gay men in northern Wisconsin. Mm. And so Billy became a homeless teenager at 15. Mm. He had um, dropped out of uh, high school in his sophomore year of high school. 
Uh-huh. Uh, again, there was no compulsory education in Wisconsin at that time, so he could just drop out. Wow. I had a lot of friends that dropped out. A third of my class dropped out after oh, sophomore year, a lot of times because we were working farms and we needed labor. So mm. there were a lot of reasons for that. But um, as I continued to track, I also learned, and this is, was something that was really interesting in the investigation. I was trying to, what I had heard a report that Billy had been sexually assaulted at a roller skating rink in Eau Claire. Mm. And I know that roller roller skating rink really well because, of course, I was the same age as Billy. Mm -hmm. So I started to look through the Eau Claire Leader-Telegram, which is the town newspaper, for any report of a sexual assault. And I couldn't find one specific to the roller skating rink, but I did find a news article about a 14-year-old boy who had been brutally beaten Mm. by three older uh, boys and that he had gone to the hospital and that he— this boy told the police that uh, the motive for the crime was robbery. And I read that, and I, my, I just got tingles all over me. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, my God, that wasn't Billy. That was me. Mm. That, I was the boy. And I had been a victim of a violent hate crime when I was 14 years oh old in God. Eau Claire. And I had totally taken it and just shoved it down. Just been like, oh my god! Oh my not god. when my when I told my parents, I I came up with that story that it had been that I'd been a victim of of a robbery. I had no money on me, so it was pretty easy to disprove. But it was just bashing. the worst thing in the world I ever could have said was that I was gay. I mean, there was just yeah. no way I was going to be able to share uh. that with the police or with my family. And so, you know, this journey that I've been on with finding Billy has been a journey for me and finding myself. And I finally had to come to terms with this incident in my life that mm. I had just wiped away. That's amazing. That's and incredible. had to call and had to talk to my family and said, you know, do you remember that incident in 1979 when, mm-hmm. <laughs> when that happened? Here's what the truth is. And I yeah. thank Billy for that. Billy yeah. helped me find you, find me. Yeah. And in return, I found him and I found the real story of Billy Newton, mm-hmm. who Billy I'll Newton see. actually was not, not the, not the, the porn star. Mm-hmm. that he's been known for for 32 years. I know who Billy Newton actually was because I, I just spent hours and hours and I just carved out this time of my life to figure that out. And in turn, I figured myself out. Wow. But what so I... What turn it led you into this, to the, like, coming to understand Billy, how did that lead you to coming to understand this horrific crime, this tragedy well, that I, Billy suffered? Well, I think what I realized is that I took a lot of the suspects that the police had already identified. Right. And, you know, just continued to work that, work that, work those leads, right? right. Like continue to check alibis. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Billy's ex-boyfriend, Mark Ravens, was mm-hmm. considered the primary suspect. Almost everyone I talked to said Mark Ravens did it. Mm-hmm. Um, I checked I, his alibi over I and over again. I never saw it. I was we never like, believed it. We yeah. talked to Mark. We just never believed it. Mark had, Mark had, Mark was so forthcoming, and his story had mm-hmm. never changed. And never changed. Just, but no, it you know, his alibi was wobbly. Yeah, yeah and it, that, was wobbly. That, it was and wobbly. And Billy was leaving. Yeah. And so right. Okay, maybe a yeah. fight. And I also had to figure out why rough. was Billy leaving. Like, because, again, this is as a social worker. Why was Billy making these big life changes? What was happening in Billy's life that this was, right. was going on? So I really needed to 
tear apart the rumors, the innuendo, the, the talk story, the narrative that everyone had given over 32 years and really find evidence, really find what was actually happening with him without Billy sitting here telling us. Right. Mm-hmm. And it took months and months and months. I started in December of 2021, and it just day after day, I'd spend eight to 10 hours a day just talking to people, researching trying to put myself back into that time period by going over old newspapers, like what was happening in the news? Like what would they have been reacting to? Mm-hmm. Um, and so not only did I do a victimology of Billy, but I also did a suspectology of all the leading people in Billy's life. My God. Um, and so to find out what have all those people done in the last 32 years of their lives, because right. people don't fundamentally change. We are who we are. And so if you would have gone on from after October 1990 and committed some act of violence, that would have been a good clue. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so I had to check everyone's criminal records, mm-hmm. everyone involved. And that took a lot of work. I had to go down to the county government building and go through old <laughs> files looking to see, well, who's committed any crimes and, you know, what has happened to them? Have they disappeared? Ninety percent of the people involved in Billy's life are dead. Mm-hmm. Most of them from AIDS, I'm sure. substance addiction, suicide. Just time. Time, you mm-hmm. know, so that was frustrating. And I frankly thought that if there was a perpetrator, the perpetrator was going to be dead. I, I, we thought the same thing. Absolutely. We absolutely right? thought the same thing. So it's like, you know, when I would explain to my friends and family why I was obsessively working through this, they'd say, why? You're never going to find it. I can't explain why, really. I just was obsessive with it. And I just thought, well. That was how our conversation yeah, about Yeah, and I thought, well, maybe this place. will help. This Maybe this will help Rachel with her film. Maybe it'll be up to the audience to decide. It'll, it's a big mystery. I know people love mysteries, and this sure. is a big one. Sure. I mean, it was the coldest of all cold cases. Yeah. Um, so what I realized I needed to do was I needed to take a look at the gay porn industry because this is where Billy was working. Right. Not very successfully. You don't make you don't pay your rent very well with the few no, gay porn that, that's films. A, that's, that's, a, that's one of the great myths. But this was this was the frustrating part about it for me when I started looking into it is that he was before the kind of digitization, mm-hmm. if you will, of porn. There wasn't a bit you could do porn and be very secretive about it, which right. I think was something that he took advantage of. His family didn't yes. know he was doing it when he was doing it. Right. They found out after. But um and so there wasn't a lot there mm-hmm. to look into. So I'm no. impressed because I remember saying to Eric, like, I'm Googling names. I'm Googling people's professional yeah. names. Their movies are not, you know, they have websites now where you can go back years and stream all these different porn films. I couldn't find the films that yes. were being referenced. I was really hitting it's wall a, after it's wall. It's really hard. And yeah. it's, you can get frustrated so quickly. Right. And I, I did too, Christopher. Yeah. I I had moments where I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. You know, and I, but something just, I'd hang it up for the day. I'm like, okay, just hang it up. I can't find it, but I'd sleep on it, go for a hike. Suddenly I would find myself coming back to it. What I did is I, or sometimes would order the films because what I realized I needed, what I needed to do with a suspectology was do that with all of the people that had performed with Billy or served on his cast and crew. Okay. So we're talking hundreds of people. And right. I did all of that work. Wow. Wow. Found out where they were. 90% of them oh were dead. Oh, my God. And the problem was they all had aliases. So yes. I didn't know their real names. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I would. It's interesting, though. Like, what I did is I went on Reddit, which I don't normally advise people to do. Yeah. And subreddits and sub-subreddits. 
And you would find this community of people that were that were obsessed with 1980s gay porn. Yeah. Now, I'm a gay man. I've watched my share of porn. Right. For 20 minutes, I watched my porn. I put it away. I go right. live my day. Right. I realized what I needed to do. I had become a historian of 1980s gay porn. Yes. Like, I had to become this expert <laughs> from, guess, from the outside. If you could find all the cast and crew, you are the the Maybe crew the is where I'm, I'm, I mean, the, but there was a lot of crossover. Like yeah. Billy was working as a crew member the week before he was he killed, did, right? right? He would do makeup and he would, exactly. so there was, there was crossover, but still that's incredible. That's yeah. an yeah. impressive It was, it was actually easier with the crew in a way because they were more consistent working across multiple films wow. than a lot of the, the models who would maybe do a couple of films and then they would just disappear right. and you never would know what happened to them. But some, but there are these these sort of subreddits of guys that are really, you know, where they came of age in the 1980s and right. they had these formative years of their lives. Sure. And porn was a, an important part of that, particularly in areas outside of West Hollywood. Oh, my yes. God. Yes. Right. Yes. That was your only connection. That was your only community was what you were able to order, what VHS tape you were able mm-hmm. to order. Absolutely. And they would have their favorites. And so I would go and check and see, like, well... Somebody would say, oh, you know, I love Theodore Cox mm-hmm. and whatever happened to Theodore Cox. And so I would read just all the posts about Theodore Cox looking for any insight. And then I would, if I could get a, a year or date of birth, I love dates of birth because dates of birth give me new information. I love an obituary. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. When I find an obituary, I go yeah. crazy. Yeah. Because <laughs> so many people are referenced in the obituary. They are. It's family that, history. Yeah, that's how I found his sisters. It was the father's obituary yes, referenced all the sisters. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I love a good obituary, and yeah. I love find a grave. Find a grave is wonderful yes. because if I can get a real name, I can find their grave. Right. And then I can confirm that they're actually dead because right. so many times there were so many rumors mm-hmm. about so-and-so being dead. So yeah. you just didn't know. Yeah. And it was, so it was laborious and tedious work. Again, I had the time to do it because I, I wasn't working. I didn't have a paying job. I was just volunteering my time and I just was just determined. And then I got, I enjoyed it, frankly. You know, like mm-hmm. I said, I'm, I'm an introvert. So I, yeah. I don't mind spending lots of time in a room. I love the pandemic. It's been great for me. You know, I can spend lots <laughs> of time when, by myself. Yeah, that and, was when I started my obsession with it was during the pandemic. There yeah. was something easier about looking at this gruesome case because there was that sense of maybe we can push the ball forward a little bit right. as opposed to dealing with the complete chaotic nightmare outside the window. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yep, exactly. I so totally I just continued that. to do that through yeah. the summer. And I would also, Rachel would feed me different people that were in the industry because I'm, I'm not from the industry. I don't right. work. I don't work in the entertainment and industry at all. she has a very unique connection. Yeah, she's very well connected. And so I would sort of run names by and say, oh, I'm hitting a stumbling block. Do you know someone? Do you know someone? And so she would get me a phone number and I would just cold call them and mm-hmm. see if I could get them to talk to me. I read any porn star from the 1980s who wrote an autobiography I ordered it off Amazon, right. read the entire thing. Like Doug right. Probst, great. Right. Oh my gosh, Doug Probst just recently died. Sean Mayotte was his porn name. God bless Doug Probst because he literally put me in the 1980s yeah. working um, on Santa Monica Boulevard in the porn industry. Right. I, I actually wow. had a date to talk with him on the day he died. Oh, wow. It was I was devastated because yeah. he had so many answers for me, for yes. questions that I had because I could put him there. Right. Sure. Um, so I and I got attached to these guys. I, you know, they're they're people like us. They're yeah. sure. people that I, you know, it's they've moved on. Yeah, and they were just young, and they've gone on and done amazing things. Many of them, of course, did not want to talk about their roles in the gay porn industry. Right. Sure. sure. And I understood that. 
And so I've kept a lot of confidences. There are so many people I've talked to Again, over the your, last year. Your career and background certainly yes, paid off as there. a social worker. And, you know, I'm doing a lot of talking right now. But frankly, the last year, I've just listened. Yeah. I'm right. a listener. You know, yeah. I'm very good at it. Frustratingly so, if you ask my husband. He wishes I would get more <laughs> emotive. But clearly but, it's paid off. Yeah, it really it, it really helped. I knew how to ask open-ended questions. And a lot of times I would cold call someone. They'd say, listen, I didn't know Billy or I didn't, I don't remember anything. And I'd be like, okay. And then I'd just start reminiscing with them and asking them about their families or where they lived and their addresses. And suddenly someone would present a new piece, just a new little small piece of information that would take me to that next mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And so that's really my approach. What was it that led you to Rick? Yes. So from the very beginning, Rick Pasquet was sold to me as here's this amazing guy who yes. dedicated 20 years of his life right. to Billy Newton's case. Right. Yes. And I felt the same way. I'm like, wow, because I was kind of doing the same thing. And right. so I was like very impressed that Rick would do it. And when I would ask people about Rick Pasquet, I started to come up with all different answers. Some people said that he joined the investigation because he was at the funeral. Somebody else said he had responded to a newspaper advertisement seeking a private investigator um, because hmm. the friends and family were, huh. di- were uh, disappointed by the way LAPD was investigating huh. the case. Others said that he knew uh, Billy Newton. Others equally said he did not know Billy Newton. So there was a lot of surprise. I chalked it up to, well, it's been a long time. Rick Pasquet died in 2019. We can't mm-hmm. ask him. Right. Mm-hmm. But I have taken a number of his leads and just continued to work them. Um, but all of those leads ended up drying How up. did you get access to his leads? Well, a lot of them were from working with Officer Lamberti and okay. with law enforcement. So, okay. And I was very careful about approaching them. Like I, I didn't want to bother them. I mean, John Lamberti is solving crimes that were committed in the last month, right? Right. right. I recognize that he did not have the bandwidth to really field. I think I was. I think I only wrote to him three or four times the whole year, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of them were from Rachel, and a lot of them were from other people. Mm-hmm. Like I would talk to people and say, "Oh yeah, Rick mentioned that," or Rick. Like some people knew about Rick's work in the investigation; others did not. Um, so there was a lot of mystery around Rick Pasquet, but frankly, I was sort of working on other stuff. And right. so I really didn't think a lot about it. But I kind of, a lot of the leads kind of dried up for a long time. And I thought, well, let me go back over Rick Pasquet's work again. And let me see if there's something there. And I was talking, you know, I ended up talking with a lot of people, again, who worked in the industry. And, you know, people that worked in the 1980s gay porn industry are complicated people. Mm. Um you know, they're not people I necessarily would be friends with. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had some stories to tell. And so I was just trying to get as much as I could out of them. So I would ask them about Rick Pasquet or about any of the, the leading figures. And there was a guy that I talked to named Kevin Clark who had a lot of very strong opinions about different people. And, mm. uh, you know, I would listen to everybody. And I was almost... Um, my approach was almost ambivalent to all of it. Right, right. sure. I never sure. got married to a single suspect. Yeah. 
right? I always, in fact, my approach was and to— And at this point, it's, he's actually one of the investigators. Yeah, so like I wouldn't even not really— Not even a suspect Right, not all. even a suspect. And my, my whole idea was to always disprove someone rather than prove it. It was yeah. a lot faster and easier to disprove it. I get that. You know, than it is to, to prove them. And I said, you know, it'll reveal itself. The truth always comes out, was my view. It'll reveal itself. It's the same way when I work with clients as a therapist. You know, sometimes it takes a little longer, but the truth eventually reveals itself. And so I took the same approach. So anyways, I ran this guy, Rick Pasquet, and he said, well, this Kevin Clark said, well, why is Rick Pasquet involved? And I explained, just as I have with you, that he had volunteered for no pay to work as a private investigator. Right. Um, now, the reality is Rick was not a private investigator. No. He printed it on his business card. That doesn't right. make you a private investigator. <laughs> right. There's a licensing system for there private is. investigators, and he didn't right. have one. I'm not a private investigator yeah. either. Uh, we're I, not. We're <laughs> really not. Yes. And you're private. Yes, yeah. exactly. Not, I'm a social worker first. Apparently, now I'm an amateur sleuth, but who yeah, knew? Right. According to the LA Times. <laughs> that's your blurb from the LA Times. Yes, exactly. Amateur sleuths. Clark exactly. Wade. Okay, so, so... So he, what Kevin Clark said is, well, you know that Rick Pasquet worked in porn. That must have absolutely level my you. jaw dropped it dropped i'm like what do you mean he worked in porn because i as soon as i heard it i thought oh the lapd is going to be really upset about this and it scared me because i so thought the lapd had no idea he worked in porn wendy Byrne no, didn't wendy know he had, Byrne had no idea wow. that rick pasquet had worked not just worked in porn but for well over 20 years, had an entire thriving career as Richard Lawrence and Rick Lawrence and Rick Jensen. I can go on and on. And in addition, is it correct that his skate shop opened onto the alley where Billy's remains were found? Or is that a conflation of events? That's a bit of a conflation. Shut Up and Skate was the name of his skate shop. It was opened the year after Billy was was murdered. But he was, um, Rick Pasquet was editing a gay porn film in a business that opened up to the back alley called Avalon. That's the detail that it's we the keep. Avalon. Okay, okay. Yeah. Avalon, yes. Yeah, yes. still maybe there. Well, I've gone, of course, I've gone yeah. to the building. You know yeah. how I am. I do I do site visits everywhere. Oh, yeah. So, we, we've been to yeah. the alley We've been to well. the alley, too. Yes. Yeah, and, you know there. what people don't realize? You know, that's the old radio recorders studio where Elvis yeah. Presley recorded all of his tracks. Oh, oh wow. my God. We knew Guns N' Roses recorded some yes. stuff. Yes. Have you gone in the building? Like, it, the no. safe is in there. It's so cool. No, oh, wow. I mean, it's just, yeah, I had no idea that the, the dumpster actually leaned up against that building. Yeah. 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 It could not be a more of a Hollywood story. Right. Right. I mean, it, totally. it really is. So, okay, so, so as I did that, I started like, okay, well, again, I'm ambivalent. I'm not assuming guilt or any of anyone. Right. But I said, let me, I now need to look at who Richard Lawrence Clearly. is. And I learned that he was actually the writer on one of the, uh, a 1983 film called Pleasure Beach, which is literally the most profitable gay porn film ever made. Really? It was the first love story gay porn. Wow. was in 1983, hmm. which was very sweet. I actually found yeah. it and watched it. And, you know, it was nice. It, yeah, was a, it had a storyline, you know, which you weren't, people weren't used to in the early 1980s. I would become so, more yeah. so. But, um, and so... I realized that he had been involved, but I had to do the same thing with Rick Pasquet. I studied everything about him, where he grew up, his father, who was a judge, his brother, Steve Pasquet, who is, works here in Hollywood. Um, how did he get from Florida, Tampa, Florida, to Los Angeles? Well, he went through New York, and he actually had worked in an adult um, bookstore, movie theater in New York City. Oh. He was uh, the lead of a, of a hard rock kind of a... Uh, a hard rock group. Uh-huh. And then, so I just kept following him. I did the same thing I did with Billy. I'm like, well, who is Rick? I, I realized, like, who is Rick Pasquet? And 
could Rick Pasquet give us some insight? And so I began looking at his films, particularly the films around the time of Billy's murder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he was rather prolific, so it was a lot of work. Right. And so I was continuing to talk with people, anyone, again, the same process. Does anyone know who these people are? Going through the cast list, going through the crew list. Who is Ross Cannon? Ross Cannon was the videographer on a film that um, Rick Pasquet made. Uh, who was Billy Houston? You know, and talking with people. And Kevin Clark said, oh, I learned, I heard something about Billy Houston, that he was arrested, that he would, had, had been arrested later, and that he was in prison. Mm. And so uh-huh. I'm like, okay, well, first I got to get his real name. And so we learned that his name was Daryl Madden. Right. So I'm like, well, who is Daryl Madden? This is brand new. I had no idea. And so I just did the same process, going through old newspapers, Googling his name, finding anything I could about Daryl Madden. And I found this news article from the Oklahoman from 2007 about a guy named Daryl Madden who had murdered two people in Oklahoma. And one was a gay man. The other was the partner who helped him uh, murder, the gay, murder the gay man. Right. Um, and a brutal murder, by the way. I mean, it was a kidnapping, a torture. They posed as sex workers. Yes. Right. And they lured him away from his car. Is that or how? With it, his car. With they his car. got in his car. Right. And then after that, they even went to an adult bookstore. Like, it's, it was a brutal, brutal murder. Hideous. And, and uh, so I wanted to learn. And, of course, he did this, allegedly, as part of a skinhead group called Chaos Squad, oh, was God. the name of the skinhead group. And I found pictures of, of this. This was covered quite extensively uh, in the Oklahoma papers as well as in the gay community. Because mm. Oklahoma did not have a hate crime statute. Mm. So this was clearly a hate crime, I but see. they couldn't prosecute him as a hate crime. Because it wasn't on the books. Right. And this was, you know, nine years after Matthew Shepard, mm-hmm. right? Because Matthew Shepard was in 1998. And so there was a lot of attention within the gay community about this. Sure. Um, he ended up pleading guilty, sentenced to multiple lives in life in prison. That was the end of Daryl Madden. But I'm like, okay, so. This is someone that I found through Rick Pasquet. I thought, what are the odds? I, I That's such a it that, was I just can't imagine. I can't That's imagine. And I, and I I was very I was again very careful. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want to leap. And sure. I because it's just not my style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm like, okay, before we even go to Officer Lamberti with this information, I'm gonna just do a whole bio on Daryl Madden. Who was this guy? Right. So I went down again, found his entire, like I had to do the same thing. Was he actually in Los Angeles in October 1990? Well, I went down to the county government building, spent an entire day in oh their basement, God. got records. I mean, that's a horror movie in itself. Oh, my God. <laughs> if you've never been to the sure. county, to the bowels of the county government building no. in Los Angeles, no. oh, yeah. Imagine. I didn't God. know if I would get out of there alive. Oh, my God. my God. But I found what I needed. I found an arrest record from the fall of 1990. Daryl Madden got arrested. So I knew he in was LA. here. In L.A. Here in L.A. For what? So, um, it was um, it was a, uh, just a charge with his—he with his, uh, had a motorcycle. Oh. And so it was just like a, a case. But there was, it, was, yeah, it was an entire criminal record— from beginning in 1990 all the way to 99, like every wow. year, multiple times a year, crimes like here in LA, here in Los Angeles, wow. a lot of drug crimes. He had one crime where he uh, using a, a weapon called a dirk, which I never knew what a dirk Don't was. Know what it is now? I now I do. Yeah, because I actually asked Officer Lamberti, "What is a dirk?" And he says, "It's a it's a not a gun, but it's like a double sided knife." Oh my god! So oh. it's a really violent. Like it really strips flesh. Oh, oh my god! And Hideous. So yes, so I just I created that profile of him. I looked for any other any other. Uh, I went used all my reddits and subreddits for people that might have had a history 
with Daryl Madden, and I actually found somebody who said that they had been a victim of Daryl Madden, who had stabbed him oh. in the foot. Oh, so there were other. There was just a number of other crimes, but right. really, what it was for me was, I did again. I did a lot of googling, mm-hmm. but I found this book that had been written in 2013, an author named David McConnell. And he had written a book about uh, about a true crime book about right. sort of men who kill other men. Hmm. And I learned in, that he had dedicated a whole chapter of his book to Daryl Madden. And right. so I ordered the book off and Amazon. And this book is called American Honor American Killings? American Honor okay. Killings, yes. So I ordered his book. Right. I'm up at the, my vacation house up at the lake. I'm there by myself. And now I made a, a mistake. little light vacation reading yes. at your lake house, I made a of course. Mistake. I totally oh, get it. God. I totally get it. I said, well, I was so excited when I got it in the mail. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to like. And then you were alone. And I'm alone. I decided. So oh, there God. I am at night. And I'm like, got yeah. my little yellow highlighter like yeah. I did with oh, all my materials. God. It's like right. 10 o'clock at night. And I'm reading. the. Ch- I go right to the chapter. Right. And I'm reading it. And I'm learning like, oh, my gosh. Like McConnell actually has correspondence with Daryl Madden. And as I'm reading this, I'm learning all about the horrible crime against Stephen Dahmer, the man he killed in Oklahoma mm-hmm. City. Right. And his work, his role in, as a skinhead in Oklahoma. And in those letters, he says that he had killed once before in Oakland, in California as well as in Houston, Texas. Wow. And I, he, he literally said, when I was working in the gay porn industry. When I was working when in the gay I was porn working industry. It. Wow. And I'm like, I leapt out of bed. Oh, my God. And was like, oh, my God. Like, what is happening? These connections are, there was so much smoke. And it was the first time I really, after all of, and I've had a lot of moments where I've been excited about something and then it peters out. I'm like, there is, like, whatever is happening here is happening. Something is happening. Something is happening. Yes. But I still, I just didn't know what to do. I started to get scared, actually. Mm -hmm. For the first time, I got scared because I realized that the psychology of someone who was capable of doing that, it reminded me, it took me back to living in Milwaukee in 1991, when you learn that someone from your community would use access to your community to kill one of your own. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that the psychology of someone like Daryl Madden, who could work in gay porn during the day and have gay friends and be a part of our community, uh, could at night hang out with skinheads and commit random acts of violence Mm -hmm. against gay people. The same people that he was friends with. Mm-hmm. It terrified me. Just, yeah. He's just a, absolutely. I, I realized he was unmooring. a true psychopath. And frankly, I didn't know if he killed Billy or not, but I knew he was certainly capable of a lot of violence. And Clearly. so, yes. So it was really in that spirit that I continued to investigate him and continued to investigate the skinhead groups that what was happening in West Hollywood. In October 1990. Which was news to us that there was, I mean, it was before both of our times, yeah. but it, that there was skinhead activity in West Hollywood. It's not something I have heard about in the course of living here. Well, I remember when the skinheads used to always be around. Yeah. But they were apparently, apparently around. Apparently. When you yeah. talk to people who were living here at that time, they people would whisper their stories. Yeah. They would sort of say, I yeah, just could not you know, be I got astonished. beat up with a baseball bat. But we didn't say anything because I didn't want to be in the paper. I didn't right. want anyone to know I was gay. Right. It was a common, and not just in Los Angeles, by the way, but across the United States mm-hmm. and a lot of urban areas. 
And so, again, it was so very similar to what you were doing, Christopher, was trying to put myself back into October 28, 1990, what was happening within our community. Right. Mm-hmm. And these random acts of violence were happening all over the place. When you read the L.A. Times or L.A. Weekly, you were seeing all these columns being written by journalists where they were reporting these random acts of violence. The police were largely discounting them, calling them robberies gone wrong. But the gay community was reacting. In fact, a few months after Billy's death, there was an organized group of gay people that were patrolling the streets, Mm. creating safety for Mm. gay people. Mm. Again, I had no idea. No idea. um, That that had happened. And even four days after Billy's death, the male sex workers on Santa Monica Boulevard held their very first public meeting in Plummer Park. Wow. Where they were complaining about these random acts of violence, and wow. they were trying to organize themselves. Wow. Nowhere in that news article did it even mention the remains found just four days earlier. Yeah, yeah, of, totally. Of one of their own. Right, yeah. yeah. And so I realized, like, oh, my gosh, I have stumbled upon this. And so I really— did a deep dive into the skinhead community. Mm-hmm. Talked to the leading expert in skinheads, Dr. Peter Simi, who's from Chapman University, wrote a number of books, ordered them all, uh, read them, called him. He gave his time, and I said, help me with this. What's a gay skinhead? <laughs> I, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't wrap my right. head around it. Yeah. And he just gave of his time, and, and he was just one of literally dozens of people over the last 14 months who have given some information, some parts of themselves. They all took my call. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all responsible for solving Billy's killing. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all were. This was not me. It really was a wow. community effort. It really was. It was you guys. You, it was mm-hmm. so many so many of us who decided we took care of our own. Right. God damn it. Yeah. Like, yeah. We, our community solved a killing of one of our own. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the spirit by which I brought this work. I really felt that for whatever reason— I had the time. I was in the space. I don't know. I, I felt Billy behind me. I was me. going to ask you that question. Did you feel like oh, Billy was guiding you? Yes. Could, when you get to those moments, that connection with Rick and then the leap to Billy Houston and then the art of the, the, the book from McConnell. McConnell? Yes. And then yeah. the, and then the uh, realizing who Daryl Lynn really was. I, all of those things, I just... I did. And I think because it was that work I did early in the case. Like I needed to know Billy. Billy. Who yes. was Billy Newton actually? Not what the talk story is about Billy, the no. gay porn star. Right. Who was Billy Newton actually? Where did he go to school? Who were his influences? What kind of music did he like? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What were his hopes, his dreams, and his ambitions? What about the love for his sister? And yeah. their family now considers me a brother. I become mm, a wild. member of their family. I love that. And I, I love it too. That. And I feel that with them because I... I've sat across from, like his sister Michelle, I spent three hours with her. I flew to Milwaukee to visit her in May because I needed time with her. I needed time. She was the closest person to Billy. Mm -hmm. And so to sit across from her and to see the pain of 32 years of not knowing, you know, not knowing what happened to her brother. And she's moved on with her life. She's had to, right? Of course. But there's always that mystery. And you know, just having that open, that unhealed right, wound. and and that she she's only six months uh, younger than right. we, than Billy yeah, and I really are. Close in age. So you know, we have a lot of shared history. We went to the same places, and um, you know, she's overcome a lot. She's also a survivor in her own way mm-hmm. um, as well. And so I felt like Billy's social worker, his protector, his champion. I wanted to tell his story. You know, mm-hmm. when did you when did you make the decision to bring what you'd found about Daryl in? To Detective well, Lombardi. I got scared because I realized I was 
but I, I got ahead of myself. I got into the deep end of the pool, as I say, yeah. um, which I've had to jump in a lot for this without knowing anything. But I realized I was going to have to start asking questions about skinheads oh, and yeah. trying to find skinheads. That's, yeah, that, that and then I realized, scary. okay, wait a minute here. Like, this is a world I don't know. And it was a scary world. Yes. And yeah. I didn't know how connected, you know, Daryl Madden still is to these groups. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these groups that began as skinhead groups um, in the late 1980s became gangs in prison. And now they have a reach inside and outside of prison. God. And so I didn't want to, I didn't want to stumble into something I couldn't control. Right. Yeah, and right. so that's when I realized, okay, I needed, it was time to hand this off to Officer Lamberti. Mm-hmm. And so I contacted Rachel and said, listen, I, I, there's nothing more I can find. We need to get this to him. And frankly, I was nervous about it because yeah. I was, gave him the information about Daryl Madden, but also gave him the information about Rick Pasquet. And again, I was concerned that law enforcement would not want to move on any of this because oh. it would have made them look bad. Like, how did they give so much access to Rick Pasquet without knowing this information about him. Uh, so he, this is an interesting question for us, and this comes largely out of reading the L.A. Times article, which we were all in. Um, are we still suspicious of Rick Pasquet? Are we suspicious that he was covering something up or, or hiding something, that that's why he inserted right. himself into the investigation? I mean, I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't use the word suspicious. What I think is that how you solve these cases, I think— is a lot of information that comes at you. Right. Right. And so how I solved it was by not necessarily formulating like this is what happened. Right. Mm-hmm. I allow it to to bloom, to, to, to sort of reveal itself. Right. There are some un- unanswered questions about Rick Pasquet's proximity to, to the investigation. What did he know and when did he know it? And not just Rick Pasquet, but others around him mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was clearly a concerted effort made to obfuscate Rick Pasquet's work in the industry and to, to prevent the investigators from LAPD from finding that out. Mm-hmm. Now, clearly. Yes. You know, it's hard because, again, Rick Pasquet is of my generation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as gay men, we are very good at compartmentalizing our lives. Mm-hmm. We are very good at only sharing certain pieces of ourselves to certain people. It's literally a survival skill. Absolutely. And so there, that was true of everyone involved at this time. True of Billy. Sure. That's why Billy's mother didn't know he worked in gay porn, but mm-hmm. Billy's sister did. Right. It's why they Billy's friends knew that Billy may have been engaged in survival sex, but Mark Ravens didn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were all doing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, it's very possible that Rick Pasquet could have initiated his involvement in the investigation, not disclosing his role in the gay porn industry, and it just fed on itself. And then it became like, now I can't do it because right, now right. I'm gonna, it's going to draw suspicion to me. The longer I go, the, the yes. harder it comes to come exactly. clean. Exactly. Yes. And I think that happens. That happens to a lot of us, sure. right? Like, think I, how many... Think how many gay men we know who've yeah. never told their I mothers gay <laughs> they're gay. And, and I think we I said this it. earlier. It was possible to do porn in those days and be that secretive about it. Yeah, it's not possible really to do that today. We have a lot of friends who work in the industry. It's not like that anymore. No. You're on OnlyFans. You're on Instagram. You have a follow. You yes. know, it's, people find out very quickly and they counsel you. And now. they use their real names. If you're not prepared for that, don't do it. Right. They say that to you. Nobody was saying that to Billy in those days because it was all on VHS tapes in the quote unquote wrong part of town. And he's yeah. hoping that the stigma yes, is, absolutely. is correct. It's gone, if not tremendously diminished. Yes. Okay. The, because I love those all those guys. I mean, right. those guys, sure. they, they, they came to 
it's the same thing I did. I ended up going to Milwaukee for safety, right? Right. Other people went to West Hollywood or, yeah. or Boys Town in Chicago or Billy yes. went to Dallas to find safety. Okay. Sure. So where were you when you found out that Daryl, who now identifies as Daryl Lynn, right. who has undergone a gender transition, confessed to the killing. Was well, that even something you were expecting in well, a million years? I had very years? low expectations, Christopher. Yeah. I really did. Because I had been down so many rabbit holes. But when when we got the information, Officer Lamberti, within a day, he had contacted us. Mm-hmm. And he said, I want to talk to you. So I was up at the lake, six hours away. Oh. Got in the car, tore us down to back to L.A., and we sat for two hours and had coffee, and I laid out everything I had. I'm like, yeah. here's what I think. I said, I don't know if he killed Billy, but I can tell you, this guy, Daryl Madden, is capable of killing not just Billy, but a lot of people. Yeah. And surprisingly, he looked at me and goes, I agree. I said, I think this guy is a psychopath serial killer. You have his attention. He thinks you. He, he says, Clark is you. a savant. That was his first. <laughs> the first thing he said, this guy, you got to meet this guy. You got to have him on your show. He's a savant. That's what he said about you. He just is so impressed. Well, yeah, I, you, that humbles me. Laid out for him, that he humbles me so much. And I, I you know, again, I, I, you know, I, I didn't know what I was really finding. He's the real detective. I'm not. And so I tried to make things as easy for him as I could. And he was so great. I mean, I could not. And again, it was just a surprise. And what I liked was that it was the partnership between our community, our collaboration mm-hmm. Of so many of us, you guys and Rachel right. and Kevin Clark and just, I mean, All there were so the many names, his you. family, like so many people that gave of themselves and working with Officer Lamberti and the LAPD, that that's how we got it solved. And that's actually how I think these types of cold cases do get solved. Yes. He you know, said that right from the start in talking with him, yeah. that it's very often the thing you don't expect from the people you aren't expecting that right. is the thing that solves And I had the resources cases. to do it. I and mean, the time. I, time is a resource. Time. And you had it, and I think that's a big part of it, too. It helped that you were enormously qualified in all those other areas, mm-hmm. as you listed. But, but d- we talk about this all the time. Detectives have a full caseload. The Hollywood fantasy of someone who can just put their whole life on hold and yeah. tell the kids to go play outside while they research one case. Uh. It doesn't exist in so much of this revolution, if you will, the social media podcast revolution is about bringing really intelligent people who have a lot of time on their hands to bear on one particular case so they can they can widen the aperture as far as you did. We really lived in that last night. That mm. was what we were focused on because yeah. that was where we had gotten most of our Billy's last weekend right. was the name of one of our episodes. Right. You know, and, and there was but there's only so much you can churn up about that one night. You right. have to go as wide as you went. Yeah, and yeah. I think I did the same thing with that last weekend. Yeah. And actually I went through the last 3 months with Billy. I yeah. knew where he was every night. Yeah. Where he was spending his wow. time. And Billy's life was in chaos at the end of his life. Yeah. Like, it really was. He was struggling. Yeah. And he was trying to leave the industry. He was dealing with substance addiction. Right. He had broken up with Mark Ravens. He was basically couch surfing. Yeah. And he wasn't alone. That was pretty much the experience of most of the men that I met that were working in the gay porn industry at that time. Right. They weren't really, they were surviving, but barely. Yeah. Right. And, you know, they were dealing with HIV and AIDS. Sure. As well. And so- I think Billy's desire to leave, to get a fresh start, to go to Las Vegas, to live with his sister, who was more stable, was a real effort to try to get a restart with his life. And, mm-hmm. and seems like a good plan. Right. I, I, for where he was, that was a pretty good notion for a, a boy right. in his condition, I think, I think his of, place right. in the world. I think of all the discoveries that, I wouldn't say made me happy, but relieved, was that 
you know, for 32 years, Billy has been this, you know, example of, uh, you know, what happens if you move to L.A. and get involved in gay porn, right? right? This cautionary tale. Yes. And the, the reality, Billy Newton was killed because of hate. Mm-hmm. He was a victim of hate, right. just Billy like Matthew Shepard was. In the was. place that he was in and working in the porn industry mm-hmm. because of hate, if right. he'd been able to grow up without hate in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. he might never have left. He might have owned a hardware store and right. been married and settled down in Eau Claire. Yes, like, exactly. The, all of that is about hate. Yeah. Yeah. I've often said that that um, if there had been gay marriage at the time, um, mm-hmm. Andrew Cunanan might own a house, a beach house at the beach and his, you know. Right. And still be married to the same guy who didn't throw him over because he didn't yeah. want to give up half of his Well, I think your point is a good one. The- and I've always felt that about Billy, that Billy actually reflected hundreds of thousands of gay men who came of age in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. They were all my friends. They were me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the kind of violence I experienced, the difficulties I had in my life. I mean, I can't believe by the time I was 28 years old, I'd been beaten up for being gay, buried my first partner, been fired from my job. I mean, I had I've gone through some things. Yeah, I you know? totally understand. And right? I used all of that, though. I used all of those experiences to solve Billy's murder. So okay. how long after that meeting with Detective Lamberti before he was in Oklahoma? He, he told us he was going to Oklahoma that day when I met with him. Wow. But it was the holidays. It was December. And so I, he said, I, he goes, what he asked me, he goes, he goes, clearly you are really touched into this case. If you don't mind helping me prepare some questions. So I did. Wow. So I prepared a whole five-page document of Daryl Madden's history in Oklahoma, his history as a skinhead, his history as a gay porn star, his history as Daryl Madden, like everything. And Daryl Madden today, like how to use the right pronouns, you know, things right, like that right, right. to sort of help him. And he took all that with him, him and Tamara, uh, uh, the other uh, investigator working right. with him. So he um, he was there, went there the beginning of January. And I knew he was going. And I was purposefully trying not to get too excited. I was sure, really. Yeah, sure. But it's a, still a long Literally, shot. he was walking out of the prison. He immediately called Rachel. And then Rachel called me. And I was up at the lake, at the lake house, and I just cried. Yeah, so did we. I felt this weight that I've had over me for so long. I didn't know what to do. I I just didn't know what to do with it. I was was happy for Billy's family. Yeah. Right, right. I really was. And you know who I was happiest for? Mark Ravens. Yeah. Because for 32 years, Mark Ravens has been the suspect. We, We were very... I don't, protective may not be the right word. We were very guarded in how we discussed Mark. We talked uh-huh. to Mark and we were keenly aware that many people thought he was the number one suspect. Because it's always, always, always. It, always, it usually is, right? Yeah. Yeah. We we didn't think he right. was. The, I, he was did. so forthcoming when I spoke with him. He was, the details never changed, as Lamberti said. His story never changed. And, you know, I just, but it was all the home, you know, he had broken up with him. Yeah. He was moving out of town. Everybody thought, oh, I it must be I always felt him. if it was Mark, it would have been a lot messier and he would have gotten caught. Like, I just don't think Mark would have, that it would have been this kind of crime committed in this way if it had been Mark. Well, I think what what was hard with Mark, of course, is his life fell apart even more. Like, their lives were chaotic at the time of Billy's death. And it got even worse because now he's dealing with grief. He's using meth. 
of course, that led to distribution of meth where he's in a federal penitentiary for 10 years. There's sure. a local porn magazine that writes an article speculating that that Mark, um, that the murder of Billy was a drug murder, mm-hmm. right? And that yes. Mark copped to the deal that he did because he had to keep quiet about who had murdered Billy. I mean, the speculation oh, yeah. was just out of control. So much speculation. Control. And that was just one piece of speculation. Yeah. I mean, there were, there were dozens of these. Okay, but now let's talk as fellow obsessives about this case. <laughs> <laughs> about what I'm going to call the limits of this confession mm-hmm. or what we think Daryl Lynn might be still not telling the truth about. Because yeah. I have yeah. I have opinions. Yes. My biggest opinion, which I shared with John last week, yeah. was I don't think they pulled over and threatened to rob Billy. I think they promised him a good time. And that's why Could Billy be. went with him in that truck. Um, I, think they pro- I think they had party favors. I think they had party because favors. Because if he had meth in his yeah. system at the time, he had to have gotten it somewhere. Well, yeah. we actually know. Yeah. We actually know that the night before Billy was killed, he yeah. purchased meth. Yes, he did. We In know fact, that the, too. Yeah, the person yeah. the person that sold it to him was actually charged because of the investigation. Oh wow! So oh, later, yeah, that. he was charged and yeah. and had probation time because of the investigation into Billy's murder. Oh, huh? Wow! And so um, we knew that Billy was using meth, right. and that he likely was using it that Sunday afternoon. Sure. Right. Whether or not he used it with these guys is another case. Now. What I also know about what was happening in the skinhead community, and earlier that week, a guy by the name of Tom Metzger, does that name ring a bell Mm -mm, to you? mm -mm. Tom Metzger was the leading skinhead. He had founded his own skinhead group, White Aryan Brotherhood. And that I've heard of. Yes. And do you remember the Geraldo incident? Yes. Yes. That was Tom Metzger. Oh my God. Yes. So earlier in 1988, let me just jump in yeah. for our listeners who are maybe too young to remember the Geraldo incident. Geraldo, before he was a Fox News personality, had a talk show that was just muckraking scandal all the time. And there was a massive brawl on stage started by the skinheads during yes. an episode. And that was apparently right. Tom he, was, They were on Oprah. Yeah. Like, it was yeah. a big thing. Got in the late in the face with a chair. He got a black eye or something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. A busted nose. Yeah. Very good. You have a good yeah. memory. I do yeah. remember that. It was quite the... It was it like, was. Wow. Yeah. Well, so these skinhead groups were popping up all over the place. And they weren't the notion that of sort of the British skinheads, right, with the shaved head. Yeah. But they were white supremacist groups. Yeah. And they were organized because of hate, right? They mm-hmm. not just hated gay people, they hated people of color and Jewish people and the homeless and disabled. I mean, name their enemy. We're all on the list. Oh, but um, in 1988, two years earlier, a couple of skinheads killed an Ethiopian immigrant in Portland, Oregon. Oh, my God. And it was a brutal killing. They confessed to it. But what they said was, the killers, where they said, we were motivated to commit this horrible act of violence against this immigrant because of Tom Metzger's hate speech. Well, the Anti-Defamation League heard that and said, you know what, we need to somehow make it difficult for Tom Metzger, who was the head of this skinhead group in Southern California, to organize, to get money, to raise money. So they sued him in court in Oregon, civil litigation. And five days before Billy's murder, the jury came back and found Tom Metzger civilly liable. It's considered a watershed moment in the skinhead community, the ability mm. for the ADL to take down skinheads. Mm. $12 million settlement. Tom Metzger had to sell his house. Bankrupted he them. Bankrupted him. He later goes on to prison six months later for actually committing an act of violence in San Fernando Valley. Wow. But the skinhead community was highly agitated yeah. the weekend of Billy's murder. In fact, I found a news article about skinheads that had taken out a petition to have a public protest in support of Tom Metzger in a local park. Wow. And, you know, Tom Metzger's whole gig was that 
he never organized acts of violence. They were all random, and he called it the lone wolf approach. It's really what he's known for. So I knew that it was very possible that skinheads could have been committing multiple lone wolf attacks the weekend of Billy's murder. So do you believe... Daryl Lynn's assertion that she was not involved with the dismemberment and disposal of Billy's body. I do because not believe that. I don't, I don't either. either. I do not believe that. I think it's, you know, Daryl Madden, Daryl Lynn, and I want to be respectful. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much respect I should give Daryl Madden, but mm-hmm. I'm going to try. We can at least because respect her I remember, you know, there are lots of trans people. All trans people don't kill people. No. No. It so has nothing Darryl, to do Darryl with Daryl Lynn did not need a reason necessarily to kill Billy. Daryl Madden is a psychopath mm-hmm. and has killed multiple times. Now, we know three killings that he's already done. I suspect there are more, and I believe Officer Clearly. Lamberti thinks there are, yes. are more. Mm-hmm. And it's just a matter of time. There's a reason why why Daryl Lynn is in prison for the rest of her life, because she's a danger to society. She's yeah. a danger to us. Yeah. She's thriving in prison. I'm happy for her. It's where she belongs. She does not belong on the streets. No. Um, she not only committed murder, but she also hurt lots of other people, lots of crimes. I have her entire criminal record from her time in California to her time in Oklahoma mm. for just tons of violence, drug crimes, all sorts of things. There isn't. There is literally not a crime possible that she has not committed. My God. Wow. From the time she ended up in Los Angeles at 15. I mean, she was a runaway. The tragedy. Same age as Billy when yes, he ran away. Yes, their lives wow. are so similar, Christopher. Yeah, right. Like, it's a real tragedy. They Even never, their porn names yes, were practically the same. But so, they never worked together that we know about. They were they never didn't. on the same So movie. when I heard Billy Houston, my radar immediately went off yeah. from what I know about about um, serial killers, that they take mementos from their killings and they're oftentimes sexualized. That's literally what Dahmer did. Dahmer said he didn't like to kill. It was an end to a means because he actually was waiting to take the organs because he would literally have sex with them, right? It it allowed him to replay it. Wow. Mm. So that's why he killed. Mm. Think about Billy Houston. I'm thinking of that book that Scott, that David McConnell wrote. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. He killed once in California and once in Houston. Now, he lived in Houston before he came to L.A. So I was wondering, could Daryl Madden have taken the two mementos from the two kills? Oh, my God. Billy and Houston. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And was that his name? Oh, my God. And that that was what led me to believe that Daryl Madden could very well have been the serial killer. And that and you literally could not write it better because literally he's taking it for purposes of sex. Yes. Wow. Like it's literally so every time literally. he's acting as Billy Houston, he's replaying the murders. Wow. Which My is God. what a serial killer does. My God. Wow. wow. So there is a lot of mystery about how Billy Houston got his alias. Um, I think Rachel will be able to give some insight into that because mm. she's been in contact. Oh, good. Um, with she, her. She's be been, Rachel week. has been in contact yes. with Daryl Lynn. Yes. Wow. wow. There is nothing Rachel won't do. Rachel yes. is unstoppable. Yes. <laughs> and I've been very encouraging of it. I'm like, yeah. you go, girl. I want nothing to do Absolutely with that son of a bitch. Not. Yeah, <laughs> I'm terrified. You know, again, because I feel like I'm Billy. Yeah, like, right. I'm sorry. I, I know what Daryl Lynn's perspective is. I know it's really good for a film and for a book and for all of that. Daryl Lynn Madden is his is her own story. Right. But I Absolutely. never lose sight of the fact. I've looked at Billy's family. I've looked in their eyes. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I just can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I just don't think I'm a victim's advocate. 
and I. This is about Billy. This is for me. It was always about Billy. That's Absolutely. what it was all was. It yeah. was always about Billy. And so, like, what do you think of the idea that Mark Rabin's expressed in the L.A. Times piece of him going to talk to Daryl Lynn to oh try to coax God. more information out of her? Well, what I actually, when I was talking with Officer Lamberti about preparing for the interview, I encouraged Officer Lamberti to make that suggestion because in the 2007 murders of Stephen Dahmer, it's how. Um, it's, it's how Madden confessed. He What he did was he said, I will plead guilty to these murders. Selfishly, it also helped him avoid the death penalty right. in Oklahoma. But he said, I will share with Dahmer's family. This is uh, Stephen Dahmer, not uh, Jeffrey yes. Dahmer. With Stephen Dahmer's family, exactly what happened the night Dahmer was murdered. Mm. And they needed that because they sure. weren't getting that information. Mm-hmm. So they literally, he did. He sat across from them for 30 minutes. He cried, Madden cried. He expressed his sorrow. The Madden family, they had their own, or the, uh, the, Dahmer, the Dahmer family. family. They had their own issues about him being gay. It's Oklahoma. They didn't like being associated with sure. this high-profile homicide. They expressed forgiveness to Madden. And I, but I knew that that was one of the rare moments where Madden, he held the stage. Mm-hmm. And he got to express sorrow. Now, was it legitimate? He's a psychopath. I don't know. I'm not a forensic psychologist. Right, right. I don't know. Well, it was a component of who he is or who she is now. Right, or, or who she been. is now. And so, but I did believe that doing that, appealing to that, if Officer Lamberti could appeal to that part of Madden, Interesting. that might trigger her to actually confess. Maybe so. And for whatever reason, Lamberti's amazing, and mm-hmm. obviously. And you know what else? It was also Tamara. And it's mm. interesting. So Tamara, his partner, is new to homicide right. investigation. Right, yeah, telling us, us about that, yeah. Yeah, and it's funny. When I met with them both, I mean, John is so seasoned. He just knows everything about this. Yes. And, but Tamara, when I met her, she said, yeah, you know, I, I thanked her. And I said, you know, um, she said, you know, I really just kind of let John lead everything. I said, oh, no, Tamara, you don't get it. You're the reason why he confessed, not John. Because for her, she's very attractive. She's mm-hmm. in her late 30s. She's beautiful, makeup and hair. She's everything that, that uh, Daryl Lynn wants to be. She's mother. She's good mother mm-hmm. to him. Oh. And he totally responded to her. And she said that. She goes, yeah, I was giving him like makeup tips and, and, yeah. and doing all this stuff. And so she, her presence in that interviewing room, I believe, has really made a fact, a big difference in in Madden confessing. The way in which all of this has come together still just completely blows me away. I'm I'm so joyous at being here yeah. and being able to have arrived at it. But the the way when I was reading the article in the mm-hmm. LA Times and listening about us all yes. and mm-hmm. going, my God, I know that little group. How did so? The, how do you the way explain in which it? This group came together. Yeah, like well, we always say, Billy. Yes, you know, Billy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Billy. Billy took our hands and guided us together and took us to the place where we needed to be mm-hmm. yeah. to come to this. Kind of I don't amazing know if it's kismet. I mean, there were so many moments of that. It was like so many oh, strange too many. coincidences. Too many for it to just be completely random. But it, it you go back it. even to the randomness of why were we getting obsessed with it right as Rachel was getting obsessed yeah. with it? We'd never met Rachel. Right. We didn't I was familiar with me the either. movie and her work. And she emailed me out of the blue saying, I heard your podcast and I'm about this case too. And I'm you know, let's get and together you, and talk. Looking into the 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 community that you were from right. and seeing an article yes. that was that yeah. was was there because because you guys had understood the, 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 the Dahmer line. connection I don't know if I ever would have even heard about right. it right 
You You'd know? never heard of it before until that moment yeah. and you were there. I mean, all of those little elements dovetailing together. You to know, bring interesting. Us to I mean, I really explored the Dahmer of... connection. Like I went, I went there. I read his entire confession. I read every mm -hmm. book written. I read, there's a whole cottage industry about Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, there I'm is. Sure. Yeah. I drove to Fresno. I got all the records of Joyce Flint, where she lived. Was there any, like I really pursued the Dahmer thing because it made sense. What do you think in this moment, knowing what we know of Ron Wheeler's account that he saw somebody, mm -hmm. he saw Billy leave the bar with a man who did not appear in the early police reports right. that nobody was willing to talk about? That's what I really believed. Did I ever believe it was Dahmer? Mm -hmm. No. And I yeah. think Ron qualified his yes. account and said if it might not have been him, but it really looked a lot like right. him. And Eric always would contribute that that was a really popular look back then. It was not that, only a popular look, but it was a popular memory that yeah. people around the country had. Yeah. It was after Jeffrey Dahmer, there are so many reports of Jeffrey Dahmer being being spotted in yeah. their laundromat, in their grocery store, right? There was, yeah. it, there was a lot of that. I actually, and I believe Ron Wheeler believes it, which mm -hmm. is really important because mm -hmm. that's, that's an important part of everyone's story. Yeah. And I just listened to all of it. I would no judgment. But yeah. it's an important part of this story be because of the Dahmer connection that... The things that we were right. doing, the little things that we were doing really spread yes. out into the world to call attention back to Billy's yeah, case. Yeah, I think if you take that any one thing. of those away, this case might not ever I, have been And solved. I had a moment of sitting in bed. I was, I was sitting in bed when I read Ron's email and he says Jeffrey Dahmer and I thought, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> because for one, I thought the minute we say this, this is, this is going to stick to this until yeah. it's unstuck right. by something else. But – it was a way of getting people to talk about the I case. We it. weren't lying about it. I don't think Ron's lying about it. It was part of the conversation. But If I was a betting yeah. man, I would say who he's – I believe he saw someone – I think he saw Tim Alexander because that's why Billy went to Rage Nightclub that afternoon right. was to see Tim Alexander. And Tim Alexander died in 1993 but of AIDS. Wasn't Tim Alexander working as a bartender? He was working – he was decorating the space right. for the upcoming Halloween project. Right, and he, he was, was like, don't bother me. I'm busy. He and was. Billy was like, pay attention to me. Right, and, and Billy like, was working. drinking. Yeah. He was working. Yeah. And he was there with Gerald Denning, who was his then roommate, becomes his lover later on. And so Gerald Denning was not too happy, I think, about Billy and Tim Alexander. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And – so I think that may because Tim Alexander was over six feet. So I think that may have been. But again, 32, 33 years later. But Ron Wheeler recalls having a conversation with the man where he said he's from out of town and just yeah. th do things heat up later tonight. It's a little boring. And so but I mean, I don't know. It's 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 a part of, you know, Daryl Lynn's confession leaves a lot off the table. It does. right? And so where are you with the accomplices? Is that something <laughs> like, are you, are you moving your investigation? Uh, well, you know what? You're, so you're going to need police protection is, if you go down that road. Again, I, I like supporting victims. Yes. And I know that I believe that Madden killed other people. And so yes. I, what I've been doing is trying to find other, other missing victims. people. Yeah. And there are a number of people. Yeah. I don't know if you know the case of Adam Hecht. Adam Hecht in 1989, his father was a movie producer. He was the, actually a tennis instructor for the uh, Menendez brothers. Wow. And Adam Hecht's car hmm. in, was discovered in 1989 on a street in Beverly Hills. Money in the car, wallets in the car, everything. He disappears. Wow. No one has seen or heard from Adam huh. Hecht since then. Wow. Um, Adam Hecht was associated with Billy's case. I found a record of Adam Hecht, of a private investigator who was working the Adam Hecht case from the year earlier that had showed up in the Billy Newton case looking for a connection. 
I take that stuff really seriously. Yeah. Now yeah. I do, obviously. Right. Well, right. we take you really seriously. So could Adam so that's have good been enough for us? The other case is, which I think Officer Lamberti may have talked with you about, is that Madden apparently confessed to also committing acts of arson. While, no. and which again, very common for serial killers. Right. They love fire. Right. Huh. And that apparently Madden said that he believes that someone was found dead in one of the fires that he started. So when Lamberti told me that, I immediately got to work. I found a case from six months after Billy's murder, a fire in Reseda, where a week after the building was burned down, they found a body unidentified, likely a homeless person. Because remember, skinheads attacked the homeless all the time. Anyone that was perceived to be weak, they went after. I mean, the skinheads are terrible people. They're horrible people. They're horrible people. people. And so, you you know, it's things like that that I gave that information to Lamberti. But again, there's no DNA. Yeah. We don't even have an identity of the victim. But that's what everybody said about this. So keep they the did. faith. They keep did. Keep the faith. Clark, my God. Well, what I what I was, again, so when I sort of look back on sort of where I was in December of 2021, and now I've I've got my third act. I know. You've got your like, third I'm act. Like, I'm this amateur I slew. saw somebody on Twitter who quote tweeted the LA Times article said, never count out an empty nester. Yes. <laughs> in fact, I've now been invited to two universities. I'm going, uh, in April, I'm spending an entire week with the cold case unit at Michigan State That's University. That's Wow. Because uh, they have a cold case unit with the Michigan State Police. And yes. they have, they want me to come and I'm going to speak to their courses, going to talk to them, I'm going to review some of their work. That's incredible. Using the same approach that I've and I, used to I solve Billy's case. news for you. You're also coming back on TV. I would love it. That's Christopher and Eric. It's not an option. We got you first. Well, what Rachel I, got you first. Well, I'm we very uncomfortable with any, because again, I, I did not do any of this. I really thought that, you know, when you ask my husband, he said, why are you putting all this time in? It's not going to go anywhere. And I said, it was really for Billy. Yeah. And no matter what happened. Absolutely. I, I, I made a friend in Billy. Like yeah. I, a family, That's an extended family. That. It was That's really beautiful. a connection that I'm going to have to him. But I'm also, it's time for Billy to find peace. Yes. yes. Absolutely. We found his killer. And it's time. We've, we've found justice for Billy and mm-hmm. peace to his loved ones. Mm-hmm. And it's now time to for the rest of us to go on and enjoy the remainder of our lives right. and to learn those wonderful lessons. And Absolutely. so Billy's really given me this third act. Yeah. You know, it's a, a gift that keeps on giving. That's and Billy given Newton. Billy some peace. Yeah, yeah someone from my town, my small hometown. Yeah. You know, it yeah. didn't turn out the way maybe we would have wanted to when we were young kids. Um, I wanted Billy to live. I wish sure. he had lived. And sure. But uh, you know, I still think we did right by him. Yes. All of us did. Absolutely. Absolutely. All Absolutely. Of us. And we thank you for that. Thank you, Clark. And we thank you for being I here with us. I thank you guys. Thanks. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. 
Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Wow. That was incredible. That was astonishing. That is one of the most amazing interviews we have ever done, and I think well worth the extra minutes. We hope that you all will forgive us for going a little longer, but there was just nothing of that we wanted to cut. Absolutely incredible. Next week, Justice for Billy Month continues with documentarian Rachel Mason. Clark talked a lot about working with Rachel in his interview. We will be talking directly with Rachel on our next episode for the second time, but for the first time since Darylin's confession and the case of Billy Newton was solved. So until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Justice for Billy. Thanks. This is TDPS.